Our story starts in ancient Egypt, includes one of the most significant medical discoveries in the history of medicine by a man who failed out of a general arts program in his first year, climaxes with an international murder mystery, and concludes with a phone call from CSIS. So, buckle up. Have you ever heard of Sir Frederick Banting? There are few Canadians who have not, and the many Canadians who live with diabetes have a lot to thank him for. Born in a small town, this historical figure would go on to have a global impact on the medical world. Without a doubt, he is responsible for one of the greatest medical discoveries in modern times, insulin. What most people don't know is that Banting also lived a life that could very well be the inspiration for a Hollywood sensation. This week on the podcast, we are going to dive deep with special guest Tom Vandwerk to notice history that is hiding in plain sight and uncover the conspiracy surrounding this important Canadian icon. So with that, uh, we'd like to offer a warm welcome to Tom. Thank you for joining us in the super cool Notice History uh, recording booth today. Well, it's great to be here. I'm very excited to talk about this topic. I'm a Sir Frederick Banting enthusiast in general, and this story in particular, I think, is one of the greatest stories that very few people have ever heard. So I'm excited to kind of dive into this today. No, yeah, we're excited that you're going to take us on that dive with you. The greatest story never told. So Tom, maybe you can tell us a bit about Sir Frederick Banting. Well, Sir Frederick Banting is best known for his connection to insulin. Prior to his discovery, or his hypothesis, which he came up with in 1920, the only treatment for type 1 diabetics was to be put on a starvation diet. And rather than slipping into a coma almost immediately, what this would do is give you six months to a year and a half to live. And generally, when people would be diagnosed, it was reasonably young in age. So you'd have parents who'd be forced to have this horrible decision of, do you let your child die very rapidly from a diabetic coma? Or do you literally starve them to death over the next six months to a year and a half? However, in less than a year and a half after he developed his hypothesis, they achieved the first human trials that were successful for diabetes. And after that, that changed the game forever. To this day, almost 100 years on, insulin remains the only effective treatment for type 1 diabetes. So um, he was trained as a surgeon, not a research scientist. And in 1920, his private medical practice was struggling, and he had to take a second job as a lecturer at the New University of Western Ontario Medical School to support himself. Actually, it's an interesting point that you bring up, because this whole thing, diabetes, the insulin connection, the chemical weapons connection, the biological weapons connection that we're all about to dive into, actually started because Sir Frederick Banting was a rather poor businessman. When he returned from the First World War, he wanted to set up a medical practice in London. However, he came to London in the spring of that year. And that was just after the phone book had come out. Because of that, at the time, the only way that medical practitioners would generally advertise was from a sign outside of their office and in the phone book. He didn't make it into the phone book that year. As a result, in the first month of his practice, he only had a single patient. And that was a veteran who came to him who was asking to be prescribed medicinal alcohol, which Banting gave to him. Because he was struggling so badly at the time, he was forced to take a job at the newly created University of Western Ontario Medical School, which led to eventually led to his connection with diabetes. So on the night of 30th October 1920, Banting fell asleep while reading some literature related to a lecture about the pancreas. 
Late that night, he woke up and jotted down a 25-word hypothesis. Diabetes, ligate, pancreatic ducts of dog. Keep dogs alive till acini degenerate leaving islets. Try to isolate the internal secretion of these and relieve glycosucria. So that doesn't mean much to us uh, as non-medical experts. Or Latin experts. Yeah. <laughs> but impressively, it was only a year later that Banting achieved the first successful human trials of insulin. And a fun kind of fact is the first documented account of diabetes was in 1552 BCE. Um, and it was documented by Egyptian physician Hesi Ra. Been going on for a long time. Absolutely. And you can bookend that point with a case study of Leonard Thompson. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Banting House National Historic Site in London, Ontario, there's an exhibit which features the story of Leonard Thompson. It's easy to hear about these things and not really consider the human side of this. At one side of the exhibit, though, is a picture of this emaciated three-year-old child. When you see this kid, it is amazing that he isn't already dead. He's being held into the mother's arms, and you know he has weeks, most likely, to live. At the other end of the exhibit, you see a photo of him after receiving insulin treatments for a short amount of time. And he's this chubby little boy who's all dressed up and he has a big smile on his face. Dr. Banting received a letter from this family and the child wrote himself saying, Dr. Banting, I'm a fat little boy and I can climb a tree. When you see the human side of it, it really touches home the significance of this after over 2,500 years, 3,500 years, finally Banting had achieved success. The crazy thing is, though, that part of the story most people know. However, it's such a small fraction of what Banting did in his life and the ways he impacted the world. So I'm excited to dive into the next part of our story to get into where, where it gets really juicy. So Sir Frederick Banting was born in Alliston, Ontario, November 14, 1891. He grew up in a small farm. He ended up going to the University of Toronto in 1910. In his first year, he actually failed out of a general arts program petitioned the school to get back in, and they led him into medical school in 1912. During his time in university, the First World War also broke out, and he attempted to join the military in 1914. However, he was refused due to poor eyesight. He tried again in 1915, and this time was accepted. He spent the summer training before returning for his fall semester that year. As the war drew on, the need for medical professionals at the front became so severe that they actually accelerated the University of Toronto medical class for that year, and they graduated a year early. Every single doctor from that medical class ended up enlisting in the Canadian military, and there were several women as well who enlisted as nurses. At the front, Banting was actually wounded in 1918. He was wounded in the right arm by a piece of shrapnel. At the time, he was the highest remaining ranking officer at the front, and he remained in charge of the troops at his station for over the next 12 hours, commanding them despite the fact they had a wound that nearly cost him his arm. After that, he was awarded the Military Cross for Heroism for his actions at the front on that day, which is one of the highest Canadian military honours that you can receive. That part of that story, though, that I find the most interesting is that on route home, he actually wrote his mother a letter with his left hand. And when you see the letter itself, it looks like it was written by a child because he was right-handed. And he's writing to his mother telling him that he's the luckiest boy in France because he gets to go home and he's not that seriously wounded. So what happened after the First World War, Tom? After the First World War, he returns to Toronto. He ends up completing his surgical training and a residency at the Hospital for Sick Children. 
He was hoping to maintain a permanent position at the hospital after his residency. However, largely in part to the influx of doctors back in Canada from the war effort, he ended up not being able to secure that position. He spoke with a friend of his, and that friend recommended that he try London, Ontario. And that's how we return to the insulin side of the story. Okay, so we've talked about his whole discovery of insulin. So tell us more about what happens after that discovery. Banting was really uniquely positioned following that discovery. He was launched into the international research community by what he came up with. And his connection to the Canadian military also ended up serving him really promisingly. So he received numerous accolades after that. And rather than being a practicing surgeon as he was originally trained in, he shifted into research despite the fact that he wasn't actually a research scientist. He was involved in cancer research, he was involved in aviation research, and as Hitler began to gain power in Europe, he shifted towards military research. Some parts of the story are well known. Banting was one of the researchers who ended up helping to develop the first G-suit for pilots. He also, at the Banting Institute, had one of the largest human centrifuges in North America that tested that suit. However, as things started getting really nasty in Europe, Banting shifted his focus into chemical and biological weapons research, which is something very few people are aware of. Up until 1937, Canada's chemical and biological weapons strategy was to rely upon British munitions and weapons platforms in the event of another war. When Banting realized this, and he realized that Britain hadn't been developing these capabilities, he became very concerned. He had seen firsthand chemical weapons during this First World War and was aware of their capabilities. And he was convinced that in the next great conflict, there would be widespread use of these. So he began to research and petition the Canadian government and military to begin pursuing this direction. But he wasn't anti-chemical weapons. He just thought, if everyone else has them, we need to have them. Absolutely. Because if your enemy is going to be having that type of capabilities and you don't, you're going to be severely disadvantaged. So he wanted to put the allies on equal footing with whatever their enemy was would be having at their disposal. It's, I guess it's sort of the precursor to the nuclear ramping up and I guess during the war but also afterwards when we descend into the cold war it's interesting because he not only can see the bigger picture in this scenario but he's also able to see the really small like the really minute details as well right being able to think through what's happening to actual individuals and when he's at the front lines that he's able to make that balance between thinking of the greater good but also thinking of individuals Absolutely. And it's interesting that you bring that up because Banting was a very big proponent of individual responsibility as this was going on. He was thinking of the big picture of how these weapons may one day be used against entire cities and against large populations, against people's food stores. However, at the same time, he was willing to see things down to the level of the single person. And a perfect example of that is that Sir Frederick Banting actually used himself as a human test subject in mustard gas experiments. And an example of that was he was trying to develop a neutralizing agent and he exposed his leg to mustard gas. He tried the neutralizing agent out. It was ineffective. He ended up receiving a severe burn that nearly cost him his leg. That makes me appreciate it more because I've been sitting here thinking, well, I've been talking about this person who in many ways is a hero and then their willingness to involve themselves and that he's not like, but we'll test it on other people and it's okay. That it's like that wholehearted sort of personal responsibility is really interesting. However, before you go too deep with that, we will be getting into the broader scale human testing that was done in Uh-oh. Canada. Here we go. As Canada approached the Second World War towards the late 1930s, Sir Frederick Banting developed a close personal relationship with National Research Council Director Andrew McNaughton. 
Andrew McNaughton was the head of Canada's research at the time, and he also had close connections with the Canadian military. During the Second World War, he actually became the commander of the 1st Canadian Infantry Division. So you can understand the significance of that individual when you start talking about chemical and biological weapons. Through this relationship, Banting was able to pitch his idea of the possibility of viral diseases distributed on dust, which was one element of the biological weapons research that Banting did. He also was able to begin large-scale production or convince the Canadian government to begin large-scale production of chemical weapons. By the conclusion of the war, Canada became one of the world's largest producers of mustard gas. We also successfully weaponized anthrax, and we developed Compound Z, which was the only nerve agent able to counter Nazi siren gas. What is the sort of context that these weapons are being used in? Like, were they being used in the war heavily anywhere, or...? Thankfully enough, Canada never had to use chemical or biological weapons during the Second World War against its enemies. However, tests were done against military targets in Canada. Unfortunately, it was our own soldiers. These were done in Alberta, the Sheffield Testing Facility. It's a tricky issue to approach. Um, Test subjects in these scenarios weren't necessarily told fully what they were participating in. The awareness of chemical weapons wasn't something that was in the same public knowledge at the time. And test subjects who were military members would be told that they're going to participate in military experiments for a small financial benefit. And these would generally be newer recruits to the Canadian military. Uh, An example of this can be seen in a book called Deadly Allies by John Bryden, which is a really interesting, kind of encapsulates this whole element of the Canadian military strategy. Here's a quote. On May 2nd, 1942, Private L.V. Debet and Private R.H. Caldecott, among others, stood at attention on the parade in helmet and ordinary battle dress facing downwind. The air temperature hovered at the freezing mark, so they wore only underwear. An airplane droned in the distance. They were ordered to put on their gas masks as the plane passed overhead at 1,000 feet. They waited. After a suitable interval, the men dusted one another off with decontamination powder, ordinary bleach, and marched three miles back to camp where they changed clothes. The results were duly tabulated and photographed. This particular test resulted in Deviette receiving burns on his shoulder, lower back, left buttock, back of his knee, and both thighs. He was listed as disabled for 14 days, casualty class 1. A similar response was noted in Caldecott, who received burns on his entire back, right side, between his buttocks, leg, and forearms. Both men were never informed of the possibilities of these types of injury. So that's extremely unethical. Is this, uh, I guess, gets into a narrative of whether ethics can be suspended in wartime. And similar to, I guess, the idea of, just to pull another parallel in Canadian history, uh, similar to when Pierre Elliott Trudeau suspended civil liberties during the FLQ crisis. It's so difficult. When do you when do you pull the trigger on making those decisions? And how far is too far? And it's so complex. And how do you know what the correct decision is until it's already all happened and we have the outcome at the end? No part of me wants to validate these actions or say that they're okay. But I also think it's important to take them into the historical context that was going on at the time. Put yourself in 1940, 1941, 1942. At that point in the war, Canada's having to face the realization that Britain may actually fall. So these types of actions are being taken in a time of desperation rather than a privileged position that we're in today. They're not just doing it because they can, but they're doing it because they have an extreme need 
Yeah, I'm sure that everyone who was guiding those actions felt that it was something that they had no choice but to pursue. I also just want to make sure that I'm not casting Sir Frederick Banting as being the sole person who was responsible for these actions. By the time these human trials were being taken out, even though he was one of the ones who began pushing Canada in the direction of pursuing chemical and biological weapons, Sir Frederick Banting had actually already died as a military casualty in a mission as a major during the Second World War. Right. So there's obviously a lot of people in this whole decision-making aspect. There's lots of hands in the pot. And he obviously wasn't in the situation where he was able to be making all of those decisions and for everyone else in the military. And there are a lot of people who are all contributing to the situation. Mm -hmm. It's not just him, but it's an unfortunate situation nonetheless. And he is in that conversation. So should we jump ahead to the conspiracy? I feel like we should figure out about his death, which I'm pretty sure is, is it not? Is the conspiracy? At the actual outbreak of the Second World War, Sir Frederick Banting enlisted in the Canadian Army for the second time. He was given the rank of major. However, he was denied his wish to fight at the front as he did in the First World War. Instead, he became connected with military research directly in the Canadian military. It was through this position that Sir Frederick Banting actually ended up dying, even though he wasn't directly at the front. In the winter of 1941, Sir Frederick Banting was sent on a mission to Britain. The exact details of the mission are unknown. However, we do know that he was going to be transporting research and collaborating with military researchers in Britain. This saw him fly from Toronto to Montreal, then from Montreal to Gander, Newfoundland. He was supposed to fly from Gander, Newfoundland to England. However, this is February 1941. While in Gander, a horrible storm rolled in. He ends up being delayed. He has to stay a couple days at the airport. While he's there, he's writing in his journal, he's talking to pilots. He notes how the kind of drunken atmosphere that's going on at the airport in his journals. And the very last note that he ever records in his journals talks about his fears of sabotage and how easy it would be to carry out such an act at this location. The next day, his plane takes flight. He's flying on a Hudson bomber, which has been newly built and is part of a ferry service, which is going to be flying to England. It's one of six that are going to be going at the same time. His flight takes off. He gets roughly 50 miles out over the ocean when the first of the two engines fails. Pilot Mackey attempts to return to the airport. They get a short way back before the second engine fails. They're able to glide the plane back over land and they end up crash landing in the forest near Musgrave Harbor in Newfoundland. The navigator is killed instantly on impact. Sir Frederick Banting is horribly wounded as well as the pilot. However, Sir Frederick Banting is able to perform emergency medical procedures on the pilot, which stabilizes him, though he dies from his injuries and a combination of exposure shortly thereafter. And can I ask, with the planes, there were six leaving at the same time? So was it like decoys kind of thing? All leaving at the same time and his still crashed? Or is it just six that would be in service? There were six newly constructed planes. Mm. So a lot of the manufacturer planes was being undertaken in Canada at this time. So they hired private contractors, which was actually done through the CPR, to take the planes from Canada to Britain so that they could then be used at the front. Oh, okay. Private contractors, aka a really great way for them to tamper with planes? It's hard to say. It's, it's tricky to say in that exact sense. The conspiracy theories that are kind of related to this take a few different directions for the exact way that this may have been undertaken. Pilot Mackey's wife, later in her life, was interviewed by Michael Bliss, who was the predominant biographer of Sir Frederick Banton. 
She believed that there was flight crew who ended up putting sand in with the oil of the aircraft and that that brought down the plane. She also believed that those two had been killed following this once they had admitted to this and were buried in unmarked graves. What was her base? Do we know what her basis was for believing that? I think her connection to her husband, who had been working at that airport for a long time. So he had intimate relationships, presumably, with the people who were, were there with him. Okay. And there are also reports of Nazi sympathizers that were in the area as well. Why would they want to take him out? So is it the, is the theory that the government took him out or that Nazis took him out? I think it's people who would have been sympathetic with the Nazi cause. We should kind of dive into the last months that were leading up to this. And think of how, what type of target Banting would have been at the time. So Banting re-enlists as a major in the, in the Canadian military. As the Battle of Britain's going on, the nature of his research escalates. An example of this are the experiments which he took at Balsett Lake in October of 1940. So this is in the couple of months preceding his death. He begins the first stage of testing for the deployment of weaponized anthrax, which you see in his journals he desires to use against civilian targets against large population centers. So just 50 miles north of Toronto at Balsa Lake, which is near the Kawartha Lakes, he actually begins testing different agents, which could be mixed with anthrax to be able to carpet dust targets from planes. So if you think of like that type of individual, he's the one who's been gathering funding for the research. He's the one who's pushing the research and he's the one who's actually conducting the research itself. He's conducting the trials. That type of person, if the enemies were aware of it, is someone who you definitely want to target, especially when prior to him, there wasn't this push. So you can understand where his death, you may see it as a way to sideline Canada's chemical and biological weapons programs. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. All right. So, I mean, we've kind of already done this, leaving the world of sourced historical evidence to already kind of venture into some of these theories. It's, it seems like a little bit from just the speculation that we've done. But I think that it's important to also talk about what some of the mainstream historical sources think about this um, and whether or not everyone else is on board with this conspiracy, potential conspiracy theory. Or I don't know if it's a potential for you, Tom. I think that you're all in on this. I'm open to possibilities. I think in general, I'm fairly skeptical when it comes to most conspiracy theories. However, one thing I find interesting about this one is the general refusal to even investigate or consider alternate possibilities by mainstream sources. Why do you think that would be? I think it, if you are someone like Michael Bliss, who's a well-known, prominent Canadian historian and biographer, if you begin endorsing things which are seen as fringe, it may invalidate you. So the Canadian Encyclopedia actually claims that there is no evidence to support stories that the plane had been sabotaged or that Banting's mission was unusually important which is interesting that in the encyclopedia they would make the point of having a stance on that, because if anything, to me, that kind of implies that they're like, so don't ask. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're going beyond just presenting the facts into making a judgment call about something like this, which seems like you're pushing a little bit of an agenda. Especially with an encyclopedia. It's not like an argumentative source, usually. Right, but then right? There, there were a few things that kind of were strange in this situation that might have tipped people off to start asking or, or need there needing to be a response baked in already into the entries within the Canadian Encyclopedia because the transport of an officer on a ferry mission is highly regular and certainly was at the time and suggestive of the importance of Banting's mission. And also the day after the crash, Prime Minister Mackenzie King informed the House of Commons that Banting had been traveling to Britain on a mission of high national and scientific importance. 
And if the prime minister is going to tell the House of Commons that, I mean, that seems like there's more to it than just nothing to see here. Move along, people. Which takes me to the next point, if you guys want to go a little bit deeper with this. Oh, yes. So we've heard about the mysterious circumstances surrounding its death. But have any of you guys considered the cover-up or potential cover-up of this tragedy which happened afterwards? Tell me more, Tom. If you want to investigate this yourself, which is... I stumbled into this topic through my research and work at Bantinghouse National Historic Site of Canada. I was studying this as a research project, came into Sir Frederick Banting's death, which led me into Canada's chemical and biological weapons programs. So when I was trying to get to this, I've read a lot of secondary sources, and I was trying to get to the meat of the primary sources. I began trying to find official crash reports. This is an aviation tragedy that happened. Ordinarily, these things are highly investigated, and some type of public record will become available. Apparently, there have been four copies of the official inquiry were created. One of these was supposed to be at Library Archives Canada, another in Montreal, another in London, England, and another one in Newfoundland. However, when you go to these archives, all four of these copies are missing. When I heard about this, I also read about the same thing in some of these secondary sources where researchers were trying to access these documents and no one's been able to get to them. So I tried submitting several access to information requests. If this is something which is being concealed, theoretically, the government should be forced to reveal it under these circumstances. I submitted these requests, and several days later, I got a call from an unmarked number. It was a CSIS agent. He began to ask me several questions. He wanted to know who I was. He wanted to know what I was researching this for. He wanted to know a lot of kind of personal background type things about me rather than my research project itself. And he was also very concerned about why I would be placing these requests to these specific institutions. A few days later, later time in day, I get another call from another agent, another person from CSIS. I begin to be asked a very similar set of questions. Five or 10 minutes goes by, they end up hanging up. I don't have any answers. A few days later, a third individual calls me. I'm starting to get the impression that they are testing my answers for consistency. I have no way of knowing this, but I don't know why else they would be asking me these questions repeatedly. In the end, after this third conversation, I get a very vague response to the results of my access to information requests. What I end up being told is that the only way anyone would be required in this circumstances to divulge this information would be if I knew the name of the specific file that I was requesting because my request was too vague as it is. However, the file is missing and nobody knows the specific name as far as I can tell. So essentially, to me reading into this, it kind of feels like they're telling me that I'm just never going to get the file. But I could be wrong and I could just be seeing what I want to see. Well, I mean, it certainly sounds like they've buried it in a way that ensures no one can ever put in a request that will actually need them to give a response, right? It seems like they've baked that into the scenario. And I wonder too, like... If those kinds of requests, particularly dealing with military history, get a similar response usually, or if that's like a very particular case, I don't know. It's just so so cloak and dagger. It definitely is. And I find it very interesting that this far after the fact, regardless of what you think about this topic or what side that you land on, there is the impression that there's some portion of the story that's missing. And the fact that this far after the event had actually happened, that that piece of the story is still missing. I think it says a lot about kind of the structure that surrounds these these topics. I think it's just crazy that it's like a flight that is mentioned in Parliament, like a plane crash that gets mentioned by the Prime Minister. And then there's only four reports, 
and just scatter them. It's amazing. And then they're mysteriously gone. Yeah, no it's one not just like, yeah, it's not like, oh, one of them was gone. It's all four conveniently went missing. I think you've converted us all, Tom. I think we're all on your side. There are certainly a lot of interesting aspects to the story, some that I definitely didn't see coming. I don't think I saw any of it really coming past the insulin discovery part, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've taken us on quite a wild ride today, Tom. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and Robin Mullins. <laughs> this week's researchers were Tom Vanderwerk with audio mixing by Robin Mullins and Emily Cuggy. For more information on the topics we covered, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you like this show, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.